Would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews? We're going to be starting our sermon series for the year in this particular uh, book that was written. And we'll be looking at verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1 this morning as we begin. I'd like to read this for us and then I'll pray for our message this morning. The scripture says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. At many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is powerful, as we will see in this book we're about to study. It speaks to our conditions just like it did to those who were living in that first century. It shows us the way of salvation. It points us to your Son. And what it has to say about your Son is amazing. And Father, I pray that as we look at this particular passage this morning, that you would help, help, us, help, us, help us to hear it with fresh ears, with hearts that are open to worship, to praise, to be obedient to what you ask of us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, today we are starting a new sermon series in this book of Hebrews. And some of you may be wondering, well, why Hebrews? Why would we study this book or what is it about? Because honestly, there are few people who would call this book their favorite. Now, maybe some of you would say that, but most people look at it and they think, well, it's maybe a little too long or too complicated. You know, I like Ephesians, what we studied last year, or Philippians, or one of those shorter epistles. I can get my handles on it, you know, and understand what it's about. And some would say that this book is difficult. All that talk about angels, covenants, the law, the temple, what's that have to do with us? Why would we study this particular book? Well, there are two reasons. Number one, the book of Hebrews is relevant because of its clear focus on Jesus Christ as Lord. The theme of Hebrews is the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, that he reigns in heaven on high, and he is sufficient to meet any need that may come to us as a church or in our own personal lives. And secondly, we study this book because of its encouragement to be strong and to stay faithful. The author is writing to people who were living in difficult times. These were Christians facing a world in upheaval. They saw the challenges that were out there. It wasn't popular to be a Christian. And there were temptations that would come to them, even temptations to fall away from the Lord. And so the writer of Scripture here is urging, pleading, calling them, encouraging them to be faithful. Now when we come to this particular book, and some have called it a letter, but it's really not written like a letter. I mean, there's no introduction here. Uh, we don't know who wrote it. It's not like 
Paul would start his letter to the Romans and say, I'm Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, called by the will of God, and I'm writing to the Romans or to the saints in the church at Rome. He, there's no introduction like that. So we don't know who wrote it, and we don't really know who it was written to. We have some ideas. And when we think about who wrote it, I mean, there have been suggestions down through the centuries that it was Paul, it was Barnabas, it was Luke, maybe Apollos, maybe even Priscilla, who wrote it as a woman, and that's why she didn't identify herself. But the structure of this book is really more like a sermon than a letter. It's like a sermon about the person of Jesus Christ and why it is so important that we give our hearts fully to him. We don't know the specific group that it was written to, but I think that the New Testament scholar William Lane has given us the best reconstruction based on the clues that we find in the text itself. And here's some of what he said. He said, Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish Christians whose world was falling apart. They had never seen Jesus in person, yet they had believed. And their conversion had brought them hardship and persecution with the result that some had slipped back into Judaism. Their Christianity had not been a worldly advantage. Rather, it set them up for persecution, the loss of property and privilege, and now could possibly even cost them their lives. We believe that this was a group that was living in Italy, and quite likely they were living in Rome a house church, a small group of believers that were there. And the reason we think that is because near the end of this book, um, there are greetings that are brought from a number of Italians based upon their names. And so we think that this was probably a group that was meeting in Rome. And what was going on at the time was that in the Roman Empire, Judaism was tolerated by the Romans, but the Christian way was not. It was viewed with some suspicion and questions. And these believers had already paid a price for their initial commitment to Christ. In Hebrews 10, verses 32 to 34, the Scripture here reminds them, remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine coming to know Christ and then seeing your friends arrested? or seeing and experiencing yourself the loss of your home, your vehicle, your business, livelihood, things like that that were taken away or destroyed. It was a difficult time. The description fits the sufferings that took place in AD 49 under the Roman emperor Claudius. And what had happened was, as these new believers were coming to worship, some of them were worshiping in the synagogues in Rome, but there was this conflict between those who believed in Jesus and those who did not, and the Jewish uh, representatives and the rabbis who had not come to faith in Christ 
protested and threw these individuals out and there were actually riots in the street against these new believers because of someone called Crestus, another name that was given for Christ. And so here were these riots and Rome wanted to quell the riots and so they were thrown out, mistreated, put in prison. Now when we come to this time in which the author is writing, it seems that another wave of persecution is about to begin. He will say in Hebrews 12:4 that you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. But in A.D. 64, Nero would launch another wave of persecution. Many of you know the history, what happened there, that Neo, Nero, in his efforts to want to remove some of the slums in Rome, ordered that they be set on fire kind of an urban renewal project, but the wind came up, the fire got out of control, and large portions of the city were destroyed by fire. And people were angry. They were angry at Nero for what he had done, and the Roman historian Tacitus records that Nero made the Christians scapegoats to remove suspicion from himself. And in the year AD 64, martyrdom became an aspect of the Christian experience in Rome. So here are these believers living at that time. And the writer of Scripture is worried that when they are brought before the authorities or when it comes to that ultimate test, would they be faithful and continue to affirm their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord? Or would they succumb to the conditions of release and deny Him? This tiny house church was asking some hard questions. Did God know what was going on? Did God care about our circumstances and our suffering? And why doesn't God speak? Why the silence? Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like you were wrestling with circumstances in your own life where you wondered, where is God and why doesn't He speak? Well, the answer of Scripture is, He has. And what He has said is powerful and it is sufficient. This passage we're going to look at today in Greek is actually one long sentence. In English, they break it up for us a little bit so that we can read it more easily, but it is one long, powerful sentence about the way that God has spoken to us. And I want to talk about three things, three different ways that God has spoken. Number one, God has spoken through creation. And theologians will call this general revelation. It is not emphasized here in this passage in Hebrews, but we do see it in other passages in Scripture. For example, in Psalm 19, 1-3, the psalmist says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands, and day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge, and there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. That is the unique thing about general revelation, is that it is universal. Uh, there is a witness to God as our creator, our maker, that exists in every culture, every people group, every nation that has been there through the centuries as long as man has been upon this planet. 
God has spoken through the world around us that he exists, that he is mighty. What do we see? Uh, What does creation tell us about God? Well, Paul made that clear in Romans 1, verse 20, when he said, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. In other words, there is a witness that is so clear, so great to the presence of God in our world that one day men will be judged according to how they responded to that general revelation. In science today, we would see that there are those who believe that science testifies to this presence of God in our world and in our universe. In recent years, physicists have observed and come up with a name for this principle. It is called the Anthropic Principle. And the Anthropic Principle states that the entire universe, with all of its laws, appears to be designed for man. They look at this universe and this world in which we live, and not just our planet, but the whole universe, is governed by certain laws. And we can identify and understand things about how the universe works. And when they look at that, they go, you know, I mean, it seems like all of them have been fine-tuned for the existence of man. That somehow this planet, this world, this universe were designed for us to exist. Not everyone wants to accept that, but the evidence is there. Martin Rees wrote a book called Just Six Numbers. And he uh, says that there are six numbers that underlie the fundamental physical properties of the universe and that each is an exact value required for life to exist. If any one of the six, like the gravitational constant or the strong nuclear force, were different, even to the tiniest degree, Rees says that there would be no stars, no complex elements, no life. Now, he wants to disavow the religious implications of that, but he doesn't hesitate to call the values providential. But there seems like there was something here. Stephen Hawking said if the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in 100,000 million million, the universe would have recollapsed before it even reached its present size. So here we are, living in this universe that seems like it was designed for man. Robert Jastow, the astronomer, observed that the anthropic principle is the most theistic result to ever come out of science. And yet, rather than believe in a God who designed the universe, many would rather believe in another theory, a theory of multiple or even infinite numbers of universes. You might call this the lucky us principle that we just happen to be lucky enough to live in the universe in which all of these things randomly happen and accidentally got it right. And even though there is no evidence to support this belief in multiple or infinite numbers of universes that are out there beyond our universe, they would rather believe that than admit that there is a God who designed and created this world in which we live. 
Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. God has spoken through the world around us and He has left a witness to Himself. But secondly, God has spoken through His prophets. And here we move into what theologians would call special revelation, the Word of God, the witness that God has given about Himself through the prophets. God spoke in the past to our forefathers through these prophets, and God spoke at many times and in various ways, the Scripture says. And you can think of that through our understanding of the Old Testament. God spoke to Abraham, and he did so audibly, calling him out from his homeland to go to a nation he did not know. And he spoke to him in dreams, dreams of a covenant, dreams of one day that his descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the heavens. God spoke to Moses in a burning bush in the desert, a bush that was not consumed by fire. He spoke to him on the mountaintop in the thunder and lightning and the fire, the cloud that descended upon the mountaintop. And in the Ten Commandments that were written by the finger of God. I mean, when I read that in Scripture, I think about how amazing that must have been. That when Moses came down with those tablets of stone, that they were engraved by the hand of God. Elijah heard God's still, small voice in the cleft of the rock. And Isaiah had his grand vision of the Lord in the temple when he saw him high and lifted up and the angels that continually call out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God spoke in signs and symbols. He spoke through natural events like thunder and lightning, earthquakes and fire. God spoke in the Urim and the Thummim when he gave decisions to the priests as they cast lots. God spoke through angels who were his messengers. He spoke through the prophets, the priests and the kings. Over and over again, God has spoken. That's how we have the Scriptures. Because God spoke and it was written down for our benefit. And the Apostle Peter wants us to know, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they were born or lifted up by the Holy Spirit. What Peter is making clear is that these men did not make these things up. They were not inventing something in their own imagination about how they thought God should be. They wrote what was given to them. They wrote as God spoke to them so that we might believe and come to know Him too. And what you're going to see as we go through this book of Hebrews is for the author of Hebrews, what Scripture says, God says. When he cites these references in the Old Testament, and there are many of them from particularly Pentateuch and the Psalms where he is going to focus on quoting, uh, he doesn't give attribution to the author. What he does is he either says God says or Jesus said. God spoke or Jesus spoke. It's amazing. 
He tells us that God's word is living and active. It is powerful. That's why it speaks to our condition, to our needs. That's why you can take something that was written thousands of years ago and because it is a dynamic, living witness to God, it speaks to our needs. And it's why when we come, even in our devotional life, how sometimes you can come to a passage you have read many times before, but that day it speaks to your circumstances in a way that is so clear, so powerful. And God's Word over and over again points us to Jesus Christ, that He is the fulfillment of Scripture. And so here we have this special revelation of God, this witness to Himself that makes the Gospel clear. That's the difference between general revelation and special revelation. As general revelation gives us witness to God, but it doesn't tell us about His Son. It, it's not clear in terms of the way of salvation. We can know some things about God, but not everything. Francis Schaeffer used this illustration to describe the difference. He said that general revelation would be like going up into the attic of a house. And you're rummaging around through all the things that are left there and you find a book. But when you open that book, the pages have been torn out and there's only the, the corners of the pages that are there. And so you can see a little bit about this book, but you don't know what the story is. And then imagine that as you searched around in that attic, you found those pages and you put them in and they fit exactly. And they describe the world you know and they told you what that story was about. Special revelation describes the world in which we live, and it tells us about God's Son, our Savior. And what the author of Hebrews here is declaring is that God spoke in the past through the prophets, but now in these last days He has spoken to us through His Son. A new age has come. The messianic era has begun and God has spoken through Jesus. We read, for example, in John 1 verse 14 that this word that was with God in the beginning, this word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And what Scripture wants us to know here is that Jesus is the fullest and clearest revelation of God. He far surpasses the limited and preliminary revelation that was given us in the Old Testament. Jesus is that final word that was spoken. And there is continuity with the Old Testament, but He's the climax. He's the fulfillment of everything that the prophets spoke about. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. The Scriptures will declare that He is fully God. Jesus will say of Himself that my words are the words that the Father tells me to speak. I don't speak on my own authority, but whatever He tells me to say, that's what I say. He will tell us that His deeds are the Father's deeds. Whatever I see my Father doing, that is what I am doing also. And he will say to Philip in John 14 and to the other apostles that to see me is to see the Father. If we want to know what God is like, this invisible God that we cannot see, we look at Jesus and we see what he is like.
And what Scripture is urging us here in Hebrews, when life is on the line and when everything is there that is tempting you to turn away from Christ, he is saying to us that to fall away from him is to lose everything. So fix your eyes on Jesus, this author and perfecter of our faith who has gone before us. Jesus is supreme. He has no equal. And in verses 2 and 3, he gives us this sevenfold description of the Son, this perfect description of the Son that is astounding. He tells us that he is the heir of all things, that the whole universe belongs to him. And we are part of his inheritance, this family of God, this people that he is calling out for himself. He actually calls us his treasure. And even more amazing is that one day we will share in that inheritance with him, that we are co-heirs with Christ of all that he is going to inherit. He's the creator of the universe. Literally, he's the creator of the ages, of all times, all ages. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He's the radiance of God's glory. He is not, his radiance is not a reflection like a mirror. We reflect the glory of God more like a mirror, if you will. But with Jesus, his glory is intrinsic. It is in his very nature as God. And when he became a man, he took on human flesh. His glory was veiled for a time. But there were those moments, like on the Mount of Transfiguration, when his glory was revealed. And his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Colossians 2.9 will say, For all the fullness of the deity in bodily form lives in Jesus Christ. He's the exact representation of his being. The word there in Greek is the word character. It was used to describe the impress of a die upon a coin. When you looked at a coin, if it had the image of Julius Caesar there, that coin was made from a die that was cast and that image was the exact reflection of the die. And he is saying that Jesus is the exact reflection of God. And not only that, he is of the same essence as God because he is God. Scripture grapples with our own limits of language to put into words that Jesus is fully man and fully God. The Nicene Creed states that he is God of God, Light of light, very God of very God. Begotten, not made, being a one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. He's the sustainer of all things by his powerful word. He spoke and the worlds came into being. And by that same word, he sustains them. He's the purifier of our sins. He's the one who died to pay that penalty that we could not. And that is going to be a major focus in Hebrews that we will come to, that he atoned for our sins once for all. And finally, he is the ruler. He is Lord of all. That after he made purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And to sit down is a position of rest. His work is done. It is finished. 
but it is also a position of honor and power at the right hand of his Father in heaven. There is no one like him. But the question can still be there in our mind. But does he love us? Does he care for us? We may believe that God is powerful, that he is the creator, that he's the maker of heaven and earth, but does he love us? Some of you have heard of Brenning Manning. He is an author and speaker, and he has a very interesting story of how he got his name, Brennan. When he was growing up, his best friend was Ray, and the two of them did everything together. They bought a car together as teenagers, they double dated together, they went to school together, and so on. They even enlisted in the army together, went to boot camp together, and fought on the front lines together. But one night, while they were sitting in a foxhole, Brennan was reminiscing about the old days in Brooklyn while Ray listened and he was eating a chocolate bar. And suddenly, a live grenade came into the foxhole. And in a moment, Ray looked at Brennan, smiled, dropped his chocolate bar, and threw himself on the live grenade. It exploded, killing Ray, but Brennan's life was spared. When Brennan became a priest, he was instructed to take the name of a saint, and he thought of his friend, Ray Brennan. So he took the name Brennan. And years later, he went to visit Ray's mother in Brooklyn. They sat up late one night having a conversation, talking about many things. And Brennan asked Ray's mother, do you think Ray loved me? And Mrs. Brennan got up off her couch and she shook her finger in front of Brennan's face and said, what more could he have done for you? Of course he loved you. He gave his life for you. And Brennan said that moment was an epiphany for him because he imagined himself standing before the cross of Jesus Christ wondering, does God really love me? And he saw in that moment Jesus' mother Mary pointing to her son and saying to a world, what more could he have done for you? He gave his life for you. Of course he loves us. Does God see our needs? Yes, he does. Does he care about us? Look at his son. That's what the author of Scripture in Hebrews will say over and over again. Look at Jesus, our great high priest. Look at Jesus, who gave his life for us. Look at Jesus, who wants to spend eternity with you. And does God speak? Yes, he does. He has spoken through creation. He's spoken through his word. And best of all, he has spoken through his son. Let's pray. Father, there is a sense of anticipation for me and for us when we come to a new book. And it is such a great joy to just unpack the Scripture and all that is there. And in this book, I pray that you would use it so that our vision and understanding of Jesus would become greater, that we would see how awesome your Son is and how much he loves us. And that we would, in the trials of our life, be willing to lay down our life for him. To stand firm in our faith in a world that is changing and to live in a way that honors you. Amen. 
And now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give us a spirit of unity as we follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.